It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. So, Andrew. Hey, Chris. How's it going? It's pretty good. You spent the weekend out in rifle with your kids. Um, It's true. Not climbing, unfortunately, due to a a dog-induced injury. But uh, that's that's another story. Yeah. Just quickly, um, not to leave that hanging, but I've I've famously said that there's no such thing as bad dogs, only bad dog owners. And um, you're looking at one, Chris. <laughs> no, it wasn't really anyone's fault. It was just a stupid accident with a rambunctious puppy that knocked me over and um I just kind of fell and jacked my shoulder up and haven't been able to climb for the last week. So alas. alas. But all that unconditional love, it's it's worth it. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. Say it is. Yeah, um, okay. So anyway, you're out in rifle, and I was wondering what you thought would happen to rifle, or any crag, really. You know, we always talk about rifle because it's right down the street, but any crag in the United States, if there was 100 people dying a year and Mm. rifle due to climbing. Wow. I mean, I think it would just get shut down immediately. Yeah. You know, I've always thought of the U.S. as being much more regulatory than Europe, Mm. Um, although we don't seem to mind, you know, a hundred people a week getting gunned down, but that's a whole nother story. The, the rifle thing. Yeah. I was thinking about that because, you know, I read your article that, um, you've written about this little controversy in Chamonix mm-hmm. or near Chamonix anyway, about removing gear. And I was and and in there, you just had these statistics about climbing in the Alps and just how many people get smoked every year and how that seems to be at least somewhat acceptable because, yeah, just it goes on and on. And I was like, Jesus Christ, can you imagine if there was that kind of carnage? Um, I don't know that, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, that has there ever been a fatal climbing accident in rifle? Fortunately, I don't think. I don't uh, think that, so. I don't think so. There's um, been some bad injuries. I mean... Josh Wharton probably yeah. should have died, right. among others. But um, yeah, I don't think so. Not that I have any recollection of. Yeah, well, the uh, the uh, objective hazards in rifle are a little different than in the big mountains. <laughs> yeah, for of sure the, of the Alps. But um, yeah, but I mean, let's take uh, let's take Long's Peak. You know, we've got right. um, up to five thirteen plus climbing on there, plus a, a very tantalizing but dangerous. You know. At, at on its face easy route up the backside the keyhole has has ha- plenty of plenty of hazards you know mm. long drops and and snow in the winter and and there's been fatalities up there on that but nothing on the scale of that you know well i think it's um i mean maybe the cascades might be a better analogy to the alps mm-hmm. because of the crevasses and stuff that you find up there um which we don't have really in uh rocky mountain park but yeah. To, I mean, just to clue people into what we're talking about here, I, I wrote a piece um, that's going to be published at some point. I, you, you got to read a draft, Chris, so it's not out yet, but it kind of looks at this 
interesting story uh, that went down in Chamonix um, concerning a pretty famous uh, alpinist, Christoph Prophet. Had you heard of him or did you did you know that name, Chris? Yeah, certainly. A longtime speed climber and speed kind soloist. Of cutting, yeah, speed soloist and and cutting edge climber from I mean going way back to like Mark Twight era and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. in the eighties, he kind of pioneered Superstar. that idea of like you know speed soloing up the Eiger North Face and like doing these enchainments of these big North Faces and stuff. And um, so he's like a really well respected guy and guide. Um, he works as an IFMGA certified mountain guide. And he guides around Mont Blanc, which, um, have you ever climbed Mont Blanc, Chris? No, never set foot in Chamonix. Oh, cool. I don't have any desire to climb Mont Blanc. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like yeah. to go do some rock climbing there and eat some cheese and drink some wine. But uh, yeah, Mont Blanc is not on my list. Yeah, so Mont Blanc is the tallest mountain in Western Europe. It's like 15,000 feet. And um, it has some of the easiest climbing in the entire Alps range. Um, so those two things of being like both easy climbing and also a trophy summit are seem to be this like recipe for lots of accidents and deaths to occur. You know, Everest has a similar, similar characteristics of both easy being, you know, relatively not very technically difficult climbing, easy routes and a trophy, you know, peak that lots of people want to do and guiding infrastructure that caters to those desires. And yeah, to your point that you, you kind of got us into this, like lots of people die in the Mont Blanc range, like kind of on that massif, not just trying to climb Mont Blanc, but kind of in that whole area and something like over a hundred people a year end up dying. I mean, there's, I think I saw a story just today about, um, uh, you know, 60 something year old guy who unroped to try to rescue a couple other climbers that needed help and then slipped and fell to his death. And that just happened like, you know, yesterday or something. And, you know, there's, there've already been accidents born of, you know, falling into crevasses and Serac fall and, um, avalanches and so forth. Um, so it's kind of, it's kind of a crazy place. Like it's, it's got this huge, you know, important history of climbing, you know, this is literally where alpinism is invented. And, um, lots of people come to Chamonix in that region to, to, you know, cut their teeth as, you know, alpine climbers and to stand on top of big peaks like Mont Blanc. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, like I said, it's hard to fathom being amongst that kind of carnage in a, in a climbing scene. And I think it, it really, you know, we'll get into what this, the, the crux of this, um, article was in this incident that that's gone down with uh profit but you know you have to have that perspective of as a guide i i just find it so wild that you go out into this environment with clients where that is so common you know there's many storied guiding companies in the united states that literally have you know two or three fatal accidents and decades right you know and and it's a big deal and you know famously like chenard equipment and patagonia and black diamond were destroyed and birthed out of a out of a, a guided fatality incident and um they're just really rare in our environment and yeah that that's the thing that really caught my eye on that and then the idea that a guide that guides there go out into this environment with these with this specter of if not 
having your own incidents, but coming across them. I mean, how often are you out guiding and then some group of yahoos has some issue and you have to like divert to do your own thing? It's got to be like, I mean, with that many fatalities, it's got to be common because then you then you don't count the the almost fatal accidents that have to happen in addition mm-hmm. to those, maybe on even a greater scale. I just it just sounds like it's carnage. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> well, I think that um, maybe you need to reshift your perspective or just adjust for the scale right. of activity that happens on this mountain because that's also mind blowing. Like, I've, I saw a statistic that said that I think it's over 200 people summit. Mont Blanc every single day during the season. I mean, the, the amount of people who are who are climbing Mont Blanc is insane. Like, well, yeah, that's in my vision because yeah. I know that if you have that many screw ups, there's thousands and thousands of people who don't screw up. Right. And so, just yeah, no, in my head, I, I just like it's like a cartoon with just ants crawling up a mountain. Right. And, you know, that's another issue of our times that we talk about on here a lot is like crowding and in climbing and and i'm just like god it did not make me want to go to mount blanc (laughs) or even chamonix really (laughs) perhaps that scale of population is the only similarity that we have with rifle between mount blanc (laughs) it's like there's nowhere to park (laughs) um yeah so to get into this controversy yeah Yeah. so so there's more there's more to tease out of it than that too right yeah, so Christophe Prophet uh, got into trouble last year because he removed these stakes that were installed on the mountain. And these stakes are like 20-foot metal rods that get drilled into the ice or into the rock. Um, and they just basically create anchor points so guides can just wrap their ropes around these anchors and you know set up a, a quick belay or something like that uh, for their clients. There were four stakes that were installed on this section of the Goutier, uh, the Goutier or the Goutier route, I think it's, um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's kind of like the trade route up Mont Blanc. So on this route, on the Bossus Ridge, high on the mountain, these four stakes were installed due to the fact that there has been like a large crevasse that has not traditionally been part of this route, but has opened in recent years, likely due to climate change. And so they've put in these stakes under the kind of the thinking being that this has gotten more dangerous. This is the route that we always take to the top. And now we have these uh, stakes on the mountain. So these stakes were ordered to be installed under the under the orders of the mayor of uh, St. Gervais, uh, which is like the town that's kind of has jurisdiction over part of Mont Blanc. And this mayor, his name is Jean-Marc Pelix. Um, he's kind of a notorious figure in the climbing world. And if you know, a lot of people might know that name or have read stories about some of his crazy ideas that he's had over the years. But if you didn't know who this guy was, he sort of positioned himself as this voice against the deaths that have been unfolding in uh, in this Mont Blanc region because it's just bad press, basically, for the tourism to only have he- headlines every single week of people going up on Mont Blanc and dying and he he's he's railing against that he's trying to do things to control the amount of fatalities that happen on Mont Blanc like he had an idea that people he he tried to push through legislation that would force people to pay 15,000 euros to cover rescue and funeral costs so 5,000 for uh, a funeral and 10,000 for a rescue basically you know saying like putting it 
in, in the idea out there that if you're going to climb Mont Blanc, you're probably going to need either a rescue and or a funeral. And so you right. should be ready to pay for those things. Yeah, it was a deposit, right? You couldn't leave the trailhead without a deposit. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. He's been highly critical of climbers who've, uh, or he was responsible for people um, not biv- not bivying on the mountain. So he put in a, in place a regulation that kind of limited people's abilities to just camp or bivy anywhere. And if they did, like, let's say they were caught out in a storm or something and they bivied, they would be fined for that, you know, for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like you're only allowed to like sleep in this like hut that they just recently installed, which is, you know, over 7 million euros or something to build this hut. So, you know, I think some of the pushback or criticism for for this rule is that they're just trying to cover the cost of this really expensive hut that they put in and ensure that people only sleep in in approved locations. And he just has this kind of authoritarian bent to him, it seems, you know, like there's lots of lots of stuff where he's just like kind of feels like he's got ownership of this mountain and is trying to rein in this this, you know, unregulated group of people risk-taking you know like idiots who are just heading up onto the mountain and killing themselves day after day throughout the year so yeah i would be what do you think of this character chris did you had you heard of him what what was your kind of impression from reading my piece about him no i i hadn't heard of him but i i sort of i i i mean i sympathize Mm -hmm. i totally sympathize in the sense that like again going back to that like carnage thing of like what do you do to kind of ebb the tide, you know, if it will, if you will. And like, I just read this article, I think it was in the New York Times about how there's like this 300% increase of people getting whacked off the top of um, subway trains. And and the people involved sort of laid the blame on social media in a lot of ways, because these people are trying to post these TikToks of them surfing the tops of these mm. subway trains. And then you know, something just like cleans them off of there. And right. it, it was like, honestly, like I think it's at a 300% increase since 2021 and deaths for this, this thing. And so you got, you, you, you know, you, you preface this with the trophy thing about that mountain. And so it's, it's, you know, the, the peak baggers because they want to post has got to have something to do with this. And mm. so, I mean, I imagine he's, he's got this funny personality obviously because he did pull some other shit but i mean i kind of sympathize with this like what do you do like maybe it's misguided to try to put a hut in because like the hut might will probably draw more people because it seems easier when you have a hut you know i don't know but yeah i I sympathize just with the idea of like how do i stop this and maybe finding people and charging people you know hitting their pocketbooks as the old phrase goes might might work because asking them or warning them or trying to scare them is not going to work. I mean, if people are surfing the tops of subways in New York City for TikToks, then obviously danger is not an issue with a lot of these folks. Yeah. So um, I'll get back to the, uh, the, the story and what happened with Christoph Prophet in a second, but I think it's worth taking a moment to just go down this tangent for a second, because I find this question really interesting we have this like slightly authoritarian mayor of this tiny town who's, you know, kind of views his mandate as one of trying to stop or, you know, lower the fatalities on this mountain that is right outside his town. And 
that to me comes in conflict with this kind of romantic libertarian view of mountaineering, like the freedom of the hills and the freedom to be on your own and to, you know, to self-rescue and to like all of those things are kind of these ideals that we or values that we aspire toward in, in mountaineering and, you know, climbing generally. And I bristle at the thought of, of anyone, especially someone in actual political power, trying to regulate those actions. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Like I said, I have, it's only some sympathy. But the the other thing that's, I find kind of part of this, and it's, it's a huge cultural thing about the Alps, and they have created sort of this safety net there. Um, and, And I think Americans oft comment on how, you know, how robust their rescue systems are and and how all that stuff's covered and you you pretty much anywhere within however many kilometers of Chamonix can be plucked off of things like by crack you know rescue teams in moments right. and and so it's like the, and and I think one of the things that you know the rugged individualist kind of idea in the in North America is that that does create a safety net that gets abused in the sense that well I'll just get rescued, you know, and we hear about it in the States when some guy who walked, you know, was lost for a couple hours and popped his inreach and then expects like everybody to come running. That That's really frowned upon here. And I think it feels like Europe's been like that for a long time. And so it's funny that they they have created this, this system or this like, you know, come to Chamonix and climb these mountains forever. And now they're like, like us in the States, you know, they're sort of reaping what they've sown with popularizing it in the way that they have it's Mm -hmm. been a huge part of their marketing and now they're like oh how do we how do we rein this in and whether they should or not i guess is is your question again like i'm I'm not like entirely into this fella's camp but i see why like if there's just you know one rag dolled body being carried through his town every couple days like he probably is over it yeah (laughs) You know, yeah, it is an interesting kind of catch 22. I think, you know, and because you haven't been to Chamonix, you might not realize this, or but I'm, I'm sure you probably are slightly aware of just how good the infrastructure is to get up into mm-hmm. the mountains. I mean, you can like take the gondola up to the Yagi de Midi and be on a glacier in 10 minutes, you know, and like mm-hmm. 10,000 feet above town, and so it's like. They have they've built the 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 tools that allow lots and lots of people to be in the mountains right away with no you know experience needed and and so these are kind of the consequences of that exactly yeah um okay so back to the story so so these stakes were installed on the ridge on this uh, on this route and Christoph Prophet removed them and that infuriated the mayor and he accused him of endangering lives and pressed charges against him for stealing gear even though Christoph Prophet brought the stakes back to town gave them back to the you know the mayor's office or whatever the the town office and um and explained that he had he had done this now, at first blush, this story kind of seems like this old school like alpinist railing against you know, fixed gear in the mountains and, you know, kind of degrading the, the pure mountaineering experience with the, you know, the, um, 
the proverbial bolt ladder uh, up on the up on this mountain. Um, but that wasn't exactly the case. But that's how this story kind of got framed for a lot of the reporting at first. Um, and it, this guy, Christoph Prophet's quite reticent, and he kind of took a while to come out and explain his his actions and reasons for doing this. But basically, he felt that he's not against guiding Mont Blanc. He does that professionally. He does did that twice last week. He was simply saying that the where the position where these stakes were installed was a bad place and it was encouraging people to continue up the old route that they had no, been taking for years when um because of this like kind of open serac crevasse situation it become in his mind too dangerous and so his his solution was to um take a, a variation that he kind of discovered and it's much longer. It's way more inconvenient. It t- you know adds hours to the ascent. But that was like kind of where he was coming from. Was we shouldn't be you know guiding people up through this like crevasse and serac section. So there's like a kind of an, a disconnect or an irony about this whole thing, where the mayor is like trying to make their route safer, and here's another alpinist trying to make the route safer, but they're not seeing eye to eye on it, and. Um, but what's interesting about this is so he was charged in court and uh, found guilty of of stealing gear, removing gear from from the mountain. And as far as I know, this is the first time that a climber has chopped gear and been criminally convicted for that. And again, that comes back to one of my concerns about this whole thing, which is the when people in actual political power are weighing in on climbing issues that this kind of stuff is going to increasingly happen. And so that's why I feel like, I don't know, that's why I bristle against the, you know, this as sympathetic as I am to the mayor's concerns for lowering the fatality count. Mm. Um, I do. Can you imagine if we had to like check in with the mayor of rifle before like you replaced <laughs> an anchor? And the reason a rifle is an apt analogy is because the city owns the park. Right. It's not a. It's not like a forest service park or a state park. It's it belongs to the city of Rifle. So technically, I think the mayor is the ultimate authority. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if we had to, if we had to go up the chain of command. <laughs> right. And I think technically there is like some protocol that new routes go through the the board. That the, has some city input. Yeah, yeah, the city has input about yeah. routes, but they're pretty um, lenient and hands off, um, which is great. Like, but it, yeah, yeah, you're right. Like, it could, if there was the the version of you know Mayor Palix in in the town of Rifle, it'd be a different <laughs> world for us. I'm gonna I'm gonna run for Mayor of Rifle, and then <laughs> then I'm gonna just shut it down. <laughs> <laughs> Only me and my friends can climb here. Only, exactly. Only authorized <laughs> yeah. the authorized entrance only. No sprinter vans on sun. No sprinter Sundays. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh man. Anyhow, um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 fascinating, but it also like it teases out this whole. Also, partly is you know safety in the mountains and and what lengths we go to to prevent deaths by creating infrastructure. And you know, there's been there's been sort of examples all over the place. I mean, in the sense, like I was thinking about half dome, like the cables route up half dome is I think an example of, you know, how, how do we 
get tourists to the top of this in a safe enough way that we don't have like carnage back here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's been improved upon and improved upon. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, national parks have all that sort of stuff, like to get people to places where without the infrastructure, they would never be able to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and to get there with a margin of safety, you know, top of angels landing is a crazy trail with a big chain on it and right. stuff as well. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, the, kind of the more, um, the more you like dive into the story, the kind of more absurd it becomes too, because these anchors weren't even very good according to profit. Like he, he removed two by hand because they had the snow and ice had been melting so much. And again, there's this other aspect to the story about how climate change is really drastically changing mountains. And it's especially, you know, uh, visible in the Alps where features change every day. And apparently all of this has gotten moot as um, in the last few months, this, you know, dangerous crevasse on this ridge has changed yet again and is now more akin to where how it looked uh, prior to its form formation. So, um, yeah. So anyway, it's like th- there's this aspect of, of guiding culture and, and you know, being and guiding these like kind of trophy summits that people want to, or guides certainly want to like kind of stick to their ways and churn people out and get to the summit, you know, like it's, it's like a process, you know, like this is what we do. We go day one here, day two here, you know, Mm -hmm. we move at this pace. We do, and we follow this route that I've done a million times. Um, but mountains change and they change, they're starting to change, you know, week to week because of just, how much warming is happening. Um, and so I brought in that, this conversation, um, that I think we've talked about here before on Everest and, uh, you know, people are talking about shuttling climbers past the Kumbu icefall up to camp one, um, because the Kumbu icefall has been another place that has just been carnage in the last decade. And, you know, there is a notable incident where like, I think 14 Sherpas died, um, while they were installing like the ropes and ladders and stuff that the climbers use to get through the, the ice fall. And it's just becoming like an increasingly insane and dangerous prospect. And so now people are going to do, or talking about wanting to use helicopters just to bring people right up to camp one, which is a tactic that has precedent in New Zealand, lots of like Mount Cook and lots of other big peaks down there. Uh, People just, take a helicopter right onto the glacier and skip the, the ice fall bullshit. So they don't have to walk through really dangerous, you know, shifting fall collapsing, you know, ice falls. And so, yeah, I think that this is just going to be a question that guides and, you know, people who are interested in mountaineering are increasingly going to have to wrestle with, which is what to do when mountains change. Do you, I mean, like Christoph Prophet's vision, he's, he, he was saying, Let's not force this line up this, you know, dangerous ridge. Let's take my variation. It's longer, you know, more inconvenient, but it's safer. And this is what the, this is the state of the mountain now. And we should be following that instead of adding fixed gear in a place that doesn't make sense when it's not even that useful and um, trying to force away the normal way up the route. The Everest thing's interesting because like the thought of like, finding a route that maybe is harder and therefore you lose a ton of your clientele 
because you actually have to have some some level of mountaineering skill and and probably the expeditions are going to be would be a lot less sure thing um but that's not even a consideration it's just like no this is the way we go and we have to keep this whole thing running and so helicopters you know not climbing right we could we could climb something and go around this but no we'll just do helicopters right and and just you know it, it, and that's like the like the sort of philosophical thing that's roiling around at the bottom of it all um is is like the the churn of the uh of the guiding industry you know they have to they have to keep it going like they they can't put the brakes on it in any way shape or form and even this little inconvenient variation of of profits is probably like we you know we're going to what percentage of clients will we not get through this and that's unacceptable kind of thing right you know? yeah yeah and and i think as much as again he's like well i'm this is about the safety of the mountain i think he probably also feels those traditions because he's had his foot in the game for a long long time um of like you know back to the fair means thing um that's gone out the window a long time ago but but yeah it's 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 in, like it's this little tempest in a teapot kind of ordeal and I think you asked around to to the scene there, and and people were somewhat ambivalent about it all. But it's just this really interesting, uh, like philosophical tapestry of so many things that we wrestle with in climbing, just in this little tiny incident. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fine he paid like six hundred euros or something. Yeah, he was originally yeah. facing like a four thousand euro fine, but it was ultimately only six hundred euros for for removing this, and they only charged him for two stakes removal because the other two were like in Italian territory, apparently. So it wasn't they couldn't like <laughs> prosecute those. <laughs> the Italians are coming for him. Yeah. So. yeah. Or I'm just very wary at this point that um, the next bolts I chop, Chris, I'm going to get sued for them. <laughs> Put your chisel down. <laughs> Do we still use chisels to chop bolts? I use a sledgehammer. I think we have a. I think we have much more uh, versatile technology now. I use a cast iron skillet. <laughs> <laughs> um, you use the butt of your AR fifteen. Yeah. <laughs> Albert Oak is best known on social media as Professor Oak. He's a YouTube creator and a speed climbing coach based in Salt Lake City. I was out at the Vail Comp last week or two weeks ago now, and I was just really struck by how many strong kids there are. And... There's just like 80 uh, kids. I, I say kids. So they were like 25 and under, but kid to me. I just never seen any of them, never seen their faces, never heard any of their names. And I watched uh, I watched them compete in this like qualifying round for, for this open competition. And I was just really struck by like how difficult these problems are, you know, like because I used to go out to the to the World Cup when it was a World Cup in Vail, you know, 10 years ago. And, you know, I'd kind of be like, well, there's probably like one or two problems I could get up, like, you know, if I projected them, <laughs> but, um, but watching these problems, I was like, literally couldn't, I, I'm pretty sure I couldn't do a single one of them. 
So it was kind of cool to just see this like level up and progression in, in competition climbing. And it's just like a completely different movement sport from what it used to be. I, I thought that, you know, it would be cool to to have a conversation with someone who's kind of more clued into this world than Chris and I are. This is one <laughs> of our, our by huge a long shot. But <laughs> huge huge blind spots on this show is that we we talk about crusty old climbing topics, but we don't spend enough time talking about what what the kids are doing. And a lot of the kids are crushing competitions and crushing plastic and and doing it in a way that is effectively if just from a strict movement perspective feels almost like a different sport than than what we do outside and albert you've been a uh observer and commentator and just kind of scholar of of this style of climbing movement um on your youtube channel and so i thought it'd be interesting to have a conversation with you to just kind of get clued into what's going on in the comp scene these days so Thanks for coming on the show. And maybe you could just start by telling people who you are. Um, tell us about your YouTube channel and kind of how you came to be this kind of, uh, I don't know, media figure, but also competitor yourself in, in, in this space. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. It's uh, an amazing Friday morning, as always. So I started a YouTube channel sort of around when the pandemic started. Uh, I, I was living in Carbondale. I was at the time working with Rock and Ice, and that sort of uh, dissolved. But um, YouTube... Spectacular yeah. failure. <laughs> Unfortunately, fortunately, you know. Dissolved, yeah. burned down, exploded, <laughs> melted into the earth. Crushed. <laughs> I, I do have the Jim Climber Climber poster in the background of me right here right now. So uh, you gotta, nostalgia. Yeah, I gotta have a nod to at the past. But I've always been excited and interested in competition climbing, and I've taken the time to have a nod towards the past climbers as well, like you know Snowbird in 1980s and all that, like the heroes of the original rock climbing and see where it's evolved today. And now it's become such a different sport. It's gymnastic. It's also like still hard crimp pulling. And I started realizing there's no content on the internet that explains this and sort of talks about it in a high level detail that is digestible for the regular audience. So I started a YouTube channel kind of like, oh, if this doesn't work, I might be homeless. So I kind of had to make it work. <laughs> Got very lucky. I will say very, very lucky. Um, and I've been fortunate to be on IFSC segments. I've been able to compete myself at national level cups. And hopefully next year I will be on the team or try to, because I sort of switched over to speed climbing uh, and that is a whole world of its own. But yeah, Vale was amazing. And I tried really hard, lost a lot of skin, <laughs> fell, fell quite a bit. Yeah. So um, just to add some color to that, your YouTube channel provides videos that ex explains technique but you also sometimes dissect you know like the big names in the comp scene like you kind of dissect how it is that they're doing what they're doing so where does this interest in movement come from because it seems to be i mean we all have that as climbers of course but you you seem to be trying to like add this kind of more academic spin to it mm, so I've done a lot of different sports. I used to be a 110 meter hurdler and I learned how to do flips in my own backyard. Uh, I mean, I think I still could double full right now. I'd, I'd have to see if I, my ankles can handle it. But um, 
And a lot of it has just been self-learning. And I was coaching in Texas for quite a bit of time. And I will never crimp as hard as either even both of you or any of the other guys. And so like, I'm realizing, oh, you can kind of move your way out of problems. If that makes sense. Like you can reach a hard crux and yeah, I may not be able to hold the holds, but you can kind of move your way through it. And so I just started studying to help myself get better and help the athletes I was coaching get better. And it became just like this encyclopedia database that really blossomed when I tore my labrum on my right shoulder and I destroyed my knee all at the same time. And I was in not climbing, but I wanted to climb with my brain. So I watched every single comp, every single comp that I can get footage of. I even like begged people like, hey, can I have VHS footage of like this comp? And I was like, oh, how did it evolve? And why are they better? What makes them better? And like, how do they get through it with movement rather than just like pulling hard and crimping hard and locking off? Because that's something that people can just innately do or train up to. But I think there's a lot of beauty said in being able, able to move your way out of problems. Tell us about the YouTube climbing scene, because that's another area that Chris and I are ig- <laughs> yeah, a little bit ignorant of. Um, well, yeah. We're ignorant in like the last resistance, even yeah. though it's like where everything is happening. Um, you know, the, the amount of views that what I consider to be like terrible climbing content on there is just like kind of amazing. So um, we're probably on the cusp of some sort of YouTube dip in. So you got you to school us as well. I guess the first question is, when's the YouTube channel uh, launching for y'all? <laughs> yeah, maybe we can talk to you about helping us Any start minute. that after the, yeah. after All the right. show. You, got, you have cameras, you got microphones, you have everything to be successful. <laughs> <laughs> YouTube climbing scene is weird. It's like the wild, wild west of the wild, wild west. YouTube already is the wild, wild west where anything can go and anything can go viral, anything can get views. But climbing YouTube is is weird because... You have all those videos of people sending stuff and those get views here and there or whatever, or like Mellow, who's obviously curating the high level end. But then there's a lot of like people who are in between vlogging and in between informational content. And I basically just needed to find a niche that already existed in every other YouTube space, just not in climbing. I was like, all right, who's who's the nerd on YouTube for climbing? No one it's going to be me. <laughs> and so that's pretty much all I did. And like, I've been making videos for quite, quite a few years. And, and I, I just wanted to find a way to stand out. Like Magnus Midbo is incredible. He, this guy like has done everything at this point. He's one of the most watched YouTube channels in general. And he's somehow bridging the gap between non-climbers and climbers. And so I was like, oh, I, I would, it'd be cool to be a little, little asterisk in the piece of internet history to contribute what I know. Give us a sense of like how lucrative it is to be a YouTuber in the climbing space. Like, what do you think Magnus is pulling from his channel? Maybe you could, mm. you know, give us a general yeah, picture this, of how This how is you're actually doing. like, this may be the thing that gets us in. I just have no idea like what numbers equate to what. So you can kind of do some rough math. On average, a good YouTuber will get six to $7 per 1,000 views. So, his every video he releases probably hits a million views. And so do some math. Those reach are up to around like $4,000 a video plus sponsors and all that. So he's, he's doing well, you know, he, I think he was working on a gym or either already opened a gym 
And you got to imagine where like a good chunk of that money has already come from. And he has his own brand of clothing. And, and so I think if you can scale it and it's very difficult to scale it to the level that Magnus is, oh, like that's your business. That, that is you. That's your brand. That's your business. That's your platform. And I'm so impressed by Magnus at all stages. Cause I mean, this guy went from literally like washing holds and trying to like eat ramen to compete at the world cups to now like, he's like, I don't know how old he is. And he's just doing some fun challenges on the internet. What kind of car does he drive these days? Do you think? Ooh. Does he have to drive a car? Does he just get chauffeured around? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, probably, right? <laughs> the original self-driving cars are chauffeurs. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So, yeah exactly. No more Tesla. So you 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 said that there's um that you're you found this like niche that was nerd climbing nerd. Is there is there still um a, an open space for surly? Because that's that's our new. That's actually our, our fundamental brand um, that we've we've come across recently. Is um, so. Is there? Do you think there's a surly space? Is anyone doing surly? All right. So send me the link when it's uploaded. I'll I'll post it on the internet. <laughs> okay. Cool. We'll see what happens. We'll see what the surly climbing YouTube. That's that's going to be. Our, I shouldn't have telegraphed that. Oh no! Um, someone's going to steal the idea. <laughs> steal the idea. I don't know. I don't yeah. feel like anyone's surly enough. Yeah. Because um, the surly people aren't going to bother with fucking YouTube. That's the whole thing. There's there's like this this problem, like a philosophical problem, that if you're surly, then the whole idea of doing a YouTube channel doesn't make any sense. So. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, just some ideas. <laughs> Albert, tell us how you got into climbing. It's it's quite interesting. I um, was a, a very avid cross country and track runner, and I learned flips afterwards. And I ruptured my foot before university, and I couldn't walk. And every day, I probably ate like five thousand calories. I was. 230 maybe 240 like i don't i didn't even see the scale like when it was at 240 i was like wow uh and i was like huh i used to be really athletic what what happened there i was like oh i need to change and i was just moseying around in university and then one of my friends uh in the math class she's like hey just come try climbing i was like you know how hard could that be literally projected v0 for an entire week straight <laughs> like three times a week I was projecting it and like I sent it and I was like that was the best thing in my life and then immediately got hooked and ironically I started uh top roping top rope hero then I turned into a lead uh back to bouldering then I learned lead climbing did only that and then I went to back to bouldering and now I'm speed climbing so I've even done trad in there you know some dry tooling I've, I've done all of it like I I want to I've done some ice like I got to Dude, I've done like one small multi-pitch. So, um, and it's initially when I started pulling on plastic in te- in Dallas, where Team Texas resides, you see these team kids doing things that are unimaginable. And I'm like, how are you 10 and climbing V13? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. And I see them move this way and learn this way. And I'm like, ah, that is really cool. And in Dallas, they had at the time this series called the Summit bouldering series which is a really cool introduction way to get into comp climbing i think that many gyms can sort of model after and you just start entering it and it's like this like six month series and every time there's a cup you go and you just compete and i think my first one in intermediate i got like nearly dead last it was amazing so i kept on going and kept on grinding kept on training and now yeah i don't know 
where it all lined up, but hurdles translated into speed climbing. And now I'm here pulling on jugs and viscerally <laughs> pissing off the trad climbers at the gym all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Um, so why speed climbing? I mean, how, how did yeah, you? I was, yeah, that's yeah. my burning question right now yeah. um, as well. And like the avenue for it, um, what is you know, the avenue for a specifically just speed climbing comp climber. Yeah. I, I mean, I still do bouldering like, cause that, those kind of go hand in hand and mm-hmm. I, I will uh, toot my own horn. I did the most tops I've ever done at a national level comp uh, at Vail. So I got like uh, 50% of the tops almost had five out of eight, but uh, next time, next time. Um, <laughs> since I was a 110 meter hurdler, I had some big dreams to like, go collegiate and go faster. And at the time, it, it, the situation at home when I was a you know, tumultuous teenager, it, it was I, I was forced to get pulled out of 110 meter hurdles. And I've sort of always had that burning desire to like go fast and go over obstacles because in hurdles, I was never raw fast. Like my 100 meter time honestly was pretty bad, but my technique to get over the hurdles was good. So, so much better than everyone else's that I was able to pass them and be faster than them. And I was like, ah, what's the equivalent of that in climbing speed climbing. If you have good technique, you can kind of outpace the people who are raw stronger than you. And I didn't have an access to a wall until I moved out of Colorado, moved back to Houston. Immediately. I started training. Like there, there was no hesitation and I knew it was something I've always wanted to do. And I just never had access to the wall, which is kind of a gap in climbing that I think a lot of people will not have the opportunity to. Most speed walls are like under a lock and key at most gyms because liability reasons, as well as like, how do you start? Like there's no information on how to start. And I will eventually be making YouTube videos on like how to like approach the speed wall and sort of learn it. But it has opened the craziest doors of my life that I think will be more relatable as this conversation uh, continues. But I mean, really, if you're a speed climber, don't you have to like move to Tajikistan or somewhere like that, like to really like get into the scene? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> like it's crazy. Like I think, and this is sort of like a more endearing. Is Tajikistan thing. a place that I just make? That no, up? I think that is a legitimate country. Okay, right? cool. Yeah. Kazakhstan has great climb, speed climbers. Okay, there you yeah, go. There that, you go. There you go. One of the stands. I know that yeah. speed climbing is very hip in the stands. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I, I sort of started speed climbing and. even now I'm like old, right? Like I'm mid twenties and I'm old in this, in the whole comp world. Just like you were saying, you see all these like 16 year olds, just one arm dynoing and everything. And even in speed, it's about the same thing. All these kids are like sub six and I'm fast enough to keep up with the bottom tier, but like nowhere near of being a world cup athlete yet, yet I'm working on it. I'll be back at the gym tonight, (laughs) but I sort of realized that, okay, I've done bouldering coaching. I've done analysis. I can figure this out. So I've been studying and studying and studying and studying and researching speed and just diving into this esoteric world that like doesn't make sense and it should never make sense. But in a weird way, I made this Instagram post saying, hey, if you're a speed climber and you don't have access to coaching, I will coach you for free online. Only caveat is you have to message me first and ask for my help. I'm not going to reach out to you because I don't know where you are or who you are. And 
I realized that a lot of these athletes come from underserved and underprivileged countries. One of the messages I got recently, uh, about a couple months ago, he, an athlete I was working with in Pakistan, he's like, I'm sorry, I can't make it to training today. I was like, oh, why? What, what's up? He's like, are you hurt or something? He's like, no, there was an explosion in my village and I can't make it to the gym. And I was like, whoa, my world is so isolated. I have no clue what the world is around me is really working on. And I was like, okay, um, let's work on this. Let's figure it out. I'll give you some exercise you can do at home. Just stay stable. And I've been able to like help these climbers like in Nepal break the national record and their, their gym is like the shoddiest thing you've ever seen. The holds are like breaking the wall panels aren't existing. And in, in this weird way, I've been able to connect a lot of people around the world in speed climbing just by like offering, you know, just not even something that goes out of my way. It's just like, Oh, turn your hip this way, turn your hip that way. But like, they've never had that information. So that's sort of been my niche. And now I'm moving up higher in the coaching world of speed because there's not too many speed coaches, but it's kind of beautiful and I'd be interested to see where it goes in the next three to five years or even next year since Olympics. So I'm out here grinding. <laughs> yeah. Now what about like all the discs? Like, you know, we just went through that whole Olympics thing where oh, it was just was like so the constant, <laughs> the constant refrain was like, why is this bullshit speed climbing in here? And, you know, even my little, little crack there about the stands. I mean, it's so much more popular in other parts of the world than it is in the U.S. You know the the um, the Reza guy, the what's his name from Reza the Iranian? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he's you know at least based on his presence on social media, he appears to be like a <laughs> full on celebrity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's freaking gigantic he's now too. But um, and he he appears to be you know like a full on celebrity. Like you know has this like renown and um and it's just such like the forgotten kind of angle here in the United States. And maybe that's part of your mission is to, is to like, you know, bring it to its, its rightful place next to the other two disciplines. Yeah. It's speed climbing in the last Olympics was a painful thing to experience. Cause I could just every day, somebody's roasting speed climbing and I'm kind of agreeing <laughs> with them. That's the worst part is like, I myself am agreeing with them. Like, yeah. Well, it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it like, I mean, the format, the format like ruined speed climbing more than anything else. I know. Like, because it didn't allow for the best speed climbers to be there. Yeah. And right. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, you Sorry, see Adam Andra speed climbing, right? And it's like you're yeah. not going to be enamored yeah. by that. Like, he, to be fair, he did decent. Like, he ran a sub seven, so it's like that's pretty good. But like, how are you going to be wowed by? Oh, this is the best climber in the world, and then you see him, and he's like in a leotard, and it's like, ah, uh, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. So, so what's your cure? Like, how how are we going to? Um, how are you going to bring us uh, uh, on board with um with speed climbing? Do you think or the Again, like the sort of Western European and, and U.S. scene to get over this, like, I mean, it's just fun to diss this thing. I mean, yeah. unfortunately. Oh, I diss know. it all the time. I like, I tell people, yeah, so. hey, come to my class, but don't ever try speed climbing because this is going to be the worst thing in your entire life. Like, I, I'm fully on board roasting it because, like, okay. yeah, I tread climb. You know, I do crack. I love the, I love all the other stuff. And, like, right. why am I still doing this? <laughs> but, Yeah. I think there's some beauty when you see recently, especially when the athletes were going under five, 
it, it's like kind of doesn't matter who you are. You can just kind of appreciate it. And I think that's like where you appreciate uh, when Alex Honnold free solos, like you don't need to know anything. You just know it's impressive. And like, if you're like doing some hard trad lines, you'll just appreciate even just like the pure physical difficulty of how fast it is. And that's something, a product of like the beta changes and the technique that's recently been used that speed climbers are able to do things that are so impressive that you can't diss it anymore. It's like, ah, it's so physically hard. It looks goofy still, but it's, it's, it's like understandable in a way. And by helping the younger generation and athletes who are better than me. In fact, I'm supposed to pick up Sam Watson. I don't know if you know who he is. Uh, he's going to live with me on my floor and he's America's number one speed climber. He has the American record hold and he's 17, one of the most talented individuals in the world. And we just sit and just train and think and just think and think and think. And it's like, Oh yeah, if he can do it, maybe we can inspire the next generation's parents who are trad climbers will be, uh, you know, make a nod to it and be like, huh, it's not so bad. And I have some interesting names that I can even throw out that might surprise you. I don't know if all of you know uh, Goddard. Did, does that name ring a bell? He's what, yeah. Dale, Dale Goddard. Dale Goddard. Yeah, Dale Goddard. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. So yeah, his yeah. son was at the recent Salt Lake World Cup for speed climbing. Oh, right on. Yeah. And so That's it's sick. like, yeah, it's like these worlds are eventually going to merge. And if, I, if I'm able to be a part of it where it's like mergeable and understandable yeah it's cool it's it's it'll get cooler hopefully <laughs> yeah i was just thinking though it's like you know there's so many sports and climbing is in that right now who's it's like weird we, we spend literally decades like striving for legitimacy mm -hmm. and then in surfing was like this you know and then when we get it we lament when it was cool and underground and so it's like like don't give away speed climbing's like I mean, it's not really like punk rock. It's more like it's it's super nerdy, <laughs> but like there's status in that, like it being this its own thing, and it's and it's outsider status and it's nerd status. That that all like that all plays, you know. So it's like it's funny because do you know what I mean? Like yeah, it's yeah, this yeah. weird thing where we want it to be this, but then we kind of don't. We want it to be to remain cool or outside because once it's inside, then it's just like nah, that's just another thing, you know. Um, so yeah, be careful is all I'm saying. Like keep it, keep it's like outsider vibe. Cause that, that'll play, you know, I'll make sure these kids don't get too fast and you're right. You're right. So I can catch up. <laughs> no, no, be fast. <laughs> Just like also like, you know, keep your, keep your style yeah. is all I'm saying. Yeah. Don't, don't, uh, kowtow to the man. Exactly. Cause <laughs> that the, only the ends being Chris and I, yeah, who, you know, that only ends badly. Um, every single time <laughs> i was very impressed sam recently posted a photo of him and i think hans also posted it they took a selfie together at the speed wall and hans tried the speed wall with sam you know like running a five second time it's like oh you know the worlds are low-key kind of merging together cool. so i think also one of the it, it, nice things about speed climbing is it's very cheap for a nation to fund it's really difficult to create the bouldering and lead environments for a country to have successful athletes. Whereas an entire set of speed holds is 1,500 euros and the wall, you can make it out of any panels. And so you don't technically need a timer, but that's another story, but yeah, you can just train and get athletes good. So you see countries like Indonesia, um, yeah, Kazakhstan, the stands, uh, Iran, these countries that, and that, 
necessary don't necessarily have the funding or the space or resources to create these high level bouldering facilities. They can right. have amazing speed climbers and it's like it's like the soccer of climbing. Exactly. And like yeah. Oh, in Indonesia, my friends that were there for the World Cup, they're like greeted at the airport. Like people know their names and they're like their celebrity status is so weird. It's like crazy. <laughs> like, oh, speed climbers, they love it. They love it. Yeah. It's 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 definitely a different world versus where we are. And it's 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 more of a perspective thing where it's like in the Western world, you're kind of isolated in a bubble and you don't realize what's happening. And even I was ignorant up until now. I also didn't realize that Kazakhstan is one of the wealthiest Central Asian countries. And I, you know, I only think of like Borat movie. I'm like, oh, it's a farmland. But <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's interesting that it's like opening up doors to different countries rather than just like a sport itself for me. So uh, let's dissect the uh, technique that you've been studiously uh working on and is it a matter of beta or is it um is there a, a technique that's independent of the the kind of be- the traditional beta for the route that where you think you can make the most gains or overcome you know deficiencies in in strength i'm curious how much both of y'all know what I've, what's the most famous move for starting do you know this Reaching I think you up, grab, I have no idea. Grab the hold with your hands <laughs> and then put your foot on the wall. Dang, so how'd they know? Yeah. How'd they know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not that big a deal. I oh. mean, it's like, yeah, you, you just reach up and grab the hold. I mean, I think I'm overcomplicating it. Up, like, all the gears are turning <laughs> my head. Just reach up. I'll try that tonight in my training. <laughs> Do I use my feet, maybe? Or no? No. <laughs> no, we don't know shit, Albert. That's why you're on the show. Okay. Amazing. Um, so, <laughs> so Reza Alipour uh, created a move where he skips hold number four to the left and it was a lot more efficient. And if you look at the speed wall, there's a the timer at the top and there's a seam that runs all the way down. That's kind of where your center of mass wants to be. And so speed climbers have been trying to find a way to like cheat their way into having the most ideal path all the time. And so Reza's beta was very good at the time. But then... The holds every year, the pour gets better and like it's a little deeper and it gets a little better texture because there's better technology. And so now the holds that we're using have very good texture and we can match them very easily and the depth is nice. So Tomo Narasaki in the 2018 Asia Games debuted his signature move, the Tomoa skip, where you literally just do a step up dyno to the middle section of the route. And so that was like unbelievable. People were freaking out. A lot of people were like, I don't know. It looks kind of stupid. It looks kind of dumb. And they're just going, still doing the Reza. And now literally everyone, except for people who are like over six foot three, are doing the Tomoe skip. And then recently in the last year, the Chinese athletes, they've been like in isolation. They've been just cooking up a storm. They created this like basically Tomoe skip for the top. I like... You either hear it getting called the Chinese top. I call it like the top Moa skip because I thought it was funny. <laughs> and and there you've been able to cut out so much more moves. It's so complicated. And at this point, it's more of a technique sport rather than a power sport. Perhaps, you know, like six years ago, you needed to be able to one arm. You need to be able to deadlift 500 pounds, you know, squat the house and then some. But now it's like, oh, like these speed climbers are strong above average strong but they're not like freak bodybuilder strong they're very efficient they're very like lean and they're like a sports car 
So what makes it difficult for someone like Adam Andra, who's got obviously strength for days to to succeed or do well at, at speed climbing? Is it is it simply a matter of him he just doesn't put enough effort into into learning these little um micro betas that help him become more efficient or is there something that he's doing or some uh physical you know is is his neck too long or something like that <laughs> i knew you were going yeah. there um, if you hadn't ooh. i would have <laughs> i'm wondering if the neck long is beneficial though i, I might i'm gonna have to dig into that one i'll, I'll okay uh, there's another numbers. youtuber youtube yeah. video for you uh, i'm gonna go get a biophysicist to do the analysis you know we'll, we'll figure if that one works out <laughs> i think for him it was an interesting spot especially for him training for the olympics because like he speed coaching really hasn't even been that good until like maybe the last year. And people just were like watching videos and trying to learn from the other guys. And the people who were fast back then, they're not like their technique was not sound and they didn't understand these like principles that are now out now. Um, And so honestly, I think Adam Andro could have gone even faster. He just like didn't know. As and also didn't spend the time to do it, but I think the cap for somebody to be fast is not that crazy in strength. I will say though, he clearly when I saw him sprint. Did you see that video where him he was training speed on his YouTube channel? He's trying to run up a hill. And it was like, oh, that was pretty bad. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I think you do need to be able to like sprint a little bit for like without an atrocious form. <laughs> right yeah. yeah yeah no i mean climbers are notorious for being terrible at at traditional athletics yeah, yeah. um in every other way so that's pretty interesting i have a question though about i guess the sport itself or what you know the the um confines of of what it is and you know during the whole olympics thing was the only i hadn't really even noticed it and then it was you know fascinating to find out where that course came from you know, um, how it sort of just fell into being the, the speed course, even the idea that it had to be the same hadn't occurred to me Mm -hmm. to be able to, you know, test against it. But at the same time, you know, now that everybody's getting down to these, these ridiculous speeds, you know, close to zero, right. Closer and closer Mm -hmm. to, to the hypothetical, you know, zero moving your body from one place to another in no time whatsoever. Does it feel limiting at all? The fact that it's only that long that, you know, we're down to, you know, hundreds of a second, probably, you know, I guess that's reasonable in some other sports as well, but it seems like there's not many races that go down to this amount of time, like compressed. And and the other question I guess I have is if it ever took off, could there be, you know, if you think about track, could there be other distances? Could they, they double the length or, you know, make, you know, or whatever to add to the sport to try to expand it away from the minute of this tiny little thing that's been, you know, how far can you get, so to speak, <laughs> um, with taking taking time off? Where it do- if where it just doesn't come come down to humidity or whether the AC in the gym is on or those sorts of things that maybe are out of an athlete's control. <laughs> Well, I, I have no clear. To, I feel like speed climbing every time I do it feels like a different experience. I'm doing different. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it is so definitely not monotonous. I don't know what you're talking about. It's the most. Oh, right. Yeah, I do. No, that's not really my no, point. No. It's more. I think the compression of the time is what is kind. Con- I don't know. I mean, what are what are times? I guess a 50 yard dash is is down in those times. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but then you have, you know, the longer distances, uh, you know, for other c- competitions within track. It, it was quite interesting. USA has always been a little bit behind when it ter- comes to terms of um, like international and competition formats. So we were running 10 meter competitions for a very long time. And the official route is on a 15 meter. And the technique on the 10 meter is slightly different because the buzzer is in a different position. So you can go with a different hand and you're not doing a certain move. So you can kind of just like dive for it where, and there's in in Indonesia, especially they love speed climbing. As as I've said before, they have a relay portion in during their national cup and they have a speed classic, which was what was before the standardized route. So they put a random route and you have like once a few runs to just learn it and just try to do it. And it's purely on-site speed climbing. And so, yeah, I think there's been some speaks and talks about like, oh, do we rotate the route every four years after the Olympic cycle? Do we add speed classic? Do we add 10 meter? Do we add a 20 meter? Um, I think 20 meter, it gets a little bit awkward because it's hard to find a place that will accommodate for a 20 meter. But aside that, like, I think we have to kind of just wait and see after Paris and what people are, are willing to put the resources towards. I would love to have an, like a full on event, a 10 meter, 15 meter speed classic. If we can find a 20 meter, a 20 meter wall, like how cool would that be to see like who can adapt and do all the disciplines at once? Because yeah, it's very much a track sport at this point. It's uh track climbing. Well, it's funny because after, you know, shitting on it for the entire run up to the Olympics. <laughs> now, because it's going to be this whole new thing and this whole new set of athletes, and it's, like I said, the the, the thing that kind of, in the end, ironically bummed me out is because I realized right away, I'm like, these are not the great speed athletes of the world. Mm-hmm. And the Olympics is supposed to be that. And, and they just hosed. And that was the thing is like, we were talking about how they hosed Adam Andra because he doesn't, he has to do speed, but they, they really hosed the, the speed climbers mm-hmm. by making, you know, the qualifying they, they didn't even qualify because they they were so specialized so i ironically i'm looking forward to that the most in the next olympics because i mean i know you know roughly you know you're gonna i know much of the field that's going to be in the other ones and who's going to do well likely unless there's some injuries between now and then it's like it's a much more of a known quantity and to me i want to now see the greats of speed climbing get to compete with each other on on a pro, in a proper comp, and mm-hmm. I think it's going to be more fun to do that and watch that or pay attention to that than the other events anymore. Also, the storylines that come out of speed climbing are pretty incredible, uh, and the format will be very very volatile. It's like a elimination bracket and a two out of three. But like since these climbers don't like the top boulder and lead climbers, they come from parents who are both climbers. You know, they're like probably in Europe or in America or in a very like affluent area and they have a lot of resources and funding. But with speed climbers, you have Vedrik who came like his only way out of poverty and supporting his mom was speed climbing. And that's like, that is beautiful. It's like, we get these stories. That's Olympic story. Yeah, like, like fodder right there. Yeah. They had to dig around a lot, I think, to get those like, yeah. those stories out of, out of the climbing Olympics yeah, sure, yeah, they're like, to Aw. get these because it has to be some adversity story mm-hmm. you know it's like quizzing them like what's ever gone wrong for you in your life and they're like um I've ruptured a point uh, one time the gym yeah. in Boulder was closed for a week no right? exactly. exactly so well, I went yeah, to my then, private you know. garage <laughs> there. it was so hot and humid 
right but yeah so anyway. albert are you um do you have olympic aspirations are you trying to to compete in paris as a competitor no as a coach a hundred percent i think cool. if i do it correctly yeah. i can get two athletes into the olympics and so far it will be we'll find out i'm yeah i I've, we're gonna work with sam as much as possible he definitely has a good chance um he's run sub five uh on on camera and that's like the elusive number like that has not been seen on camera many times i've think we've seen it maybe out of four athletes and uh, now actually five athletes it's been recorded on a video camera that has been done rumored there's more but you know no proof no pudding so uh we'll see where he's at and i'm gonna try to work with him really hard while he's staying at my uh, uh, on my floor <laughs> Is the floor part of the training? Like you, you actually have this really nice extra king size bed, but you're like, no, dude, it's floor for you. This this piece of plywood is is like where you're sleeping. Yeah, he, you, yeah, he's 17. You know. you know, he's still got to get some adversity in there. Like <laughs> adversity training, adversity training. Splinters are good for you. Yeah, yeah. Bed of nails. We'll see how tough it makes right. you. So, Albert, I'm. I'm kind of just struck by your story. I just want to take a step back and just put it all together for a second. So you, you started in this context of doing, you know, hundred meter dashes and with hurdles and it's 110, 110. Okay. <laughs> and I mean, you don't find any hurdlers in their seventies who are still hurdling from their collegiate days, you know, mm-hmm. 50 years later. And that's always been kind of one of the great things about climbing is that it um, provides this, this avenue to recreate and to be part of a single sport, you know, for your whole life. And then of course, like speed climbing has all of these like real close parallels that I think you've identified from your background as a hurdler, you know, using technique in order to go as fast as possible and and overcome deficiencies uh, of your genetics or physical abilities or whatever. It seems like this is like your niche, like this is really who you are. And so do you foresee doing being a part of the speed climbing world your your whole life do you see this are you going to be the the guy who's, who walks into the gym when he's 75 and puts up a you know sub six second <laughs> sub <time>? seven yeah. <laughs> i would love to see somebody in their sick oh actually no i take it back i have seen a 60 year old run a sub 15 time recently so very awesome. impressive very impressive but um i i it's it's kind of endearing that i see bossa moem and aspar j lolo they're i think boss is 36 he has two kids and he's still making finals hanging hanging out with the kids who are literally 20 years younger than him and so i don't i don't know how long like the athletic lifespan of a speed climber is it seems to be longer than his joint busting boulders are experiencing (laughs) but i i think i want to do this at least for like one or two more Olympic cycles, uh, either training or maybe I just completely enter fully coaching mode. But man, I, you've seen me at Rifle. I love climbing. I love outdoor climbing. I still, and, and when I hear about like Lee Sheftel, I'm like, oh, I can do 514 whenever I want. I can do those routes whenever I want. And so right now, yeah, burn out your body. Like just go crazy, have fun, enjoy the process. And I will love to 
become a trad dad, become a sport climber. I'll become an ice climber. I don't know. I'll do all of it. I'll go to the Black uh, Black Canyon and just do whatever I want when the time is right. But right now, I like I'm so invested, so excited, and yeah, I just got to see where it takes me right now. But this may belie that your um that your YouTube channel is all all speed climbing. Um, it's certainly not. Um. <laughs> So t- tell us where people can find that and also a little bit more about what your sort of general content is on there. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of bad. I stopped uploading for almost two years and then I recently started uploading again and then I just, uh, I got like so sidetracked from the Salt Lake World Cup. There's too much cool stuff happening. I hate it when that happens. Uh, <laughs> so uh, on YouTube, I've posted a lot of video analysis and like little short documentaries about um, some climbers I thought were interesting. And then recently I've been working on educational content for like technique and uh, really owning the Professor Oak name on Instagram to transfer over to YouTube. But I still am offering coaching for free for speed climbers around the world. And I'm getting requests every day and somebody's always blowing up my phone. In fact, my phone has probably gone off like 30 times during this uh, interview. And <laughs> it's, it's really cool. I'm like in a, cool weird way everyone tells me like oh why don't you charge why don't you charge this i was like yeah maybe there'll be a time for that but right now i want to connect the world through speed climbing and if it's me putting a few extra hours in the day to do that i'm gonna love it if it includes me uploading a video about speed climbing i'm gonna do it (laughs) and yeah it's nice to be in the in the talks of like pushing a sport so i'm sure both of you have done many times so are you like up all night trying to figure out a move that you could get named after like you could get your oh, new absolutely move. me and my friends have spent <laughs> hours mean, trying to learn make something work and it doesn't work ever right it's like yeah it's like pretty solved right, <laughs> right. yeah but i mean wouldn't that is that like that's probably like the kind of the ultimate yeah. thing right oh i gotta what like would, make what with the oh, what with the name of the i think it's obvious but i'm not yeah, gonna what's say the it. name of the of the of your move if uh, you were to ever find one the okay start <laughs> <laughs> i was thinking more of the prince albert oh <laughs> hey there's 16 year old kids speed climbing Shh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! I have to make fun of myself really bad. Like you know, I'm thinking about this route all the time. They're like all the time. I was one time like on a date with like with a girl, and like you know we're 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 like hanging out, and she just kind of pulls away. It's like, are are you okay? And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. And she's like, oh, oh you just seem really distant right now. I'm like. <laughs> You have no clue how much I'm thinking about this drop knee on this one move right now. Like, that's all I've been thinking. I felt so bad. I was like, it's not you. It's actually me. She's like, check, please. I just need to hit this drop knee. If I could do that, it'll be more efficient. And then I'm like, yeah, I'm doing great. I'm just really tired. You know, it's like, oh, oh my gosh, that's so bad. I felt so bad. I just had this vision of like... Like the the Terminator, you know, with all the, like the, the Terminator vision with all the calculations. That's me. Yeah. She's just like she's sitting there eating her meal, and her mouth is moving. But in the side of of the screen, are you're like analyzing all this sort of yeah. shit? It's so obnoxious. And you're like, what? Huh? What? Oh, did you say something? Oh, wait, what? Sorry, what was that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> that's awesome i love it man i love it like i said don't let the nerdiness go away it's it's like it's such a feature of the of this uh side of the sport i love it yeah and, and honestly i i got it from all of y'all like all the four runners of 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 climbing who's like established you know trad routes like cleaned up routes i'm like it's kind of the same thing all of you have been doing just i'm just transporting it into speed climbing so i'm trying to take some notes from you know the people who are doing the right things in the world <laughs> so albert you moved to salt lake which is kind of like there's the usa climbing training center there is that kind of why you're you're based in salt lake now Initially, I moved here because I thought I was going to use the training center quite a bit, but there's not too much catered for speed climbing there. It's mainly for bouldering and league lead. Um, but Momentum Mill Creek, and I've been working coaching for Momentum for a couple of years now. They've been really generous. Uh, they sort of let me have my own, and I think it is. I'm pretty sure it's the first and speed program with coaching catered towards adults. And normally the wall's under lock and key, but I get to open it up, let any day passers uh, try the wall and get really stoked. And um, it allows me to like have full access to the wall. They unofficially, officially labeled me as speed wall climbing manager. <laughs> and so I, the other day I was stripping the wall and watching the holds all like from 7.30 to 1.30 a.m., left the gym, woke up, drank some coffee, brought some bagels for the other setters, started setting the wall and finished it up at 6.00. Uh, from 6 a.m. until like 9.30. Started coaching immediately right after that. And it's amazing that the momentum, like I really have to like thank them so much for just giving me a lot of freedom and autonomy because I don't think many gyms would do that or like are able to do that. So um, another question, I guess this is probably maybe a little cringy to spray about yourself, but tell us what your best time is. And maybe before you tell us what your best time is, where was your time when you first started? Like the very first time you, you, you started speed climbing, what were you putting up? I'm pretty sure my best time when I first started was like 17 seconds. And now the fastest I've ran was 6.47, which is ironically not cringy to say because it's so slow <laughs> compared to the other guys, right? So it's like, yeah, I climbed V3. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm killing it right now. <laughs> it seems a little bit better than that to me. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is like, yeah, it's like the bottom tier of USA, which is like in the world scheme is like not even, I don't even make top 80 with that mm. kind of time. But it's uh, it's a start, and it, I've been able to con- consistently improve slowly, a lot slower than the athletes I coach, which is where uh, I put most of my resources in. Yeah, currently, I think I'm coaching over eight World Cup athletes that will be competing in, in about two weeks in Villars. Australian Federation, USA athletes, and these are like all officially unofficial Mexico, Ecuador, uh, Pakistan, Nepal. And so it's it's kind of crazy that i jokingly it was followed the memes started dissing speed climbing myself and then ended up now like trying to spread the word and being like the gospel of speed climbing (laughs) that does not make sense like that's not supposed to add up As runout aficionados know, big wall free climber Jordan Cannon holds a very special place in our hearts here at the runout, and we think he's quite fond of us as well. On the latest bonus episode for Rope Guns Only, Jordan Cannon returns to talk about his upcoming trip to Pakistan, 
Pakistan, that's so cool. Are you getting super psyched for your trip? And I just immediately like imagined myself being like sick in a tent, like shitting my brains out, like in the <laughs> snow for a week. His love of Indiana Jones. I, I've just always loved him as a character or somebody who represents a lot of passion um, and, and heart. The gay climbing life. My friends were like, oh, like, what are you going to wear to the pool party? I was like, I don't know, just like, some, like Patagonia baggies or something. And they're like, dude, no. Like, no. everybody there is going to be wearing a Speedo. And I was like, no, they're not. They're like, all right, you're going to be the only weird one not wearing a Speedo of some sort. And they were right. They were super right. <laughs> as well as his ascent of wet like a nightmare, working on Alex Honnold's hurt, and so much more. If you want to hear this candid and often hilarious bonus app and all the other sweet bonus material, sign up to become a rope gun today at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. That's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast to support the runout. On today's final bit, we feature the trio Pontiac, the three brothers that populate Pontiac grew up climbing with their dad before embarking on 20 years of recording and touring with the band. After some time off, Jennings Carney, bass Oregon vocals, has returned to the climbing fold while running Pin Druid Brewing in Spiryville, Virginia, with his bandmate brothers. Follow Pontiac on Spotify to find several albums worth of heavy psychedelic grooves, including this tune, Ignorance Makes Me High.
You've just finished another episode of the Runout Podcast. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And I'm Chris Kalous, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> because Chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die. That's true. We also have a Patreon that you can support our show at, and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com. No, 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 no. It's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, <laughs> you should go and sign up at patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> no, po- dot com slash runoutpodcast. Something like that. Give us some money. Give us some money.